with natural hybridization, the way that, and this can happen either in nature or man can help it along. So let's say you have two daylilies. You have a red one and you have a yellow one, and you would like to cross those. So you would just pluck the pollen from one and drop it into onto the stamen or the pistil of the other one, and then cross your fingers and hope for the best that you've created a seed that will come out probably orange. Welcome to Salad with a Side of Fries. I'm your host, Jen Trepic, talking wellness and weight loss for real life. We're here to clear up the myths, misinformation, bad science, and marketing to teach you how to eat and how to cheat. Are you ready? I'm having salad with a side of fries. Hey there. Welcome back to another episode of Salad with a Side of Fries. I'm your host, Jen Trepic, of course, always here. Joining me today is Brandy Searcy. So you guys may remember our episode. I called it Making Sense of Sunscreen, right? So definitely go back and listen. But Brandy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again, Jen. This is great. (laughs) I love it because today, you know, it's not an interview. We're just going to have a conversation, which I guess to fill everybody in, Brandy, you and I were chatting after the last episode and we were like geeking out on a couple different topics. And I was like, we have to do this and we have to do this conversation together. (laughs) So I'm super excited. So I appreciate you being here. I'm super excited too. And honestly, I'm glad that we chatted because just in talking with you, it reminded me to reprioritize my looking into some of this. And so it's helped a lot for my own health as well. So. Oh, yay. All right. And we're going to pay it forward today and help everybody with the research that we've been doing. So before we start, let's tell our members what they're getting this week. So members, your recipe is for lemon garlic kale salad. So it's like the perfect simple but not boring salad. <laughs> and you great as a side, you know, in addition to any barbecue, impressive really if you're bringing it somewhere or you have to bring something. And like if you're home, add some protein, perfect, easy, complete meal. I can't say enough about it. It's like the simple salad you get at the restaurant that's way better than what you think you're going to make at home. So to get this recipe, be sure you're a member. And if you're not a member, I don't know what you're waiting for. Tell me what you're waiting for, because we would love to have you join us. So here's what you do. Go to glow.fm slash salad with a side of fries. The membership is $10 a month, for which you get weekly recipes, a monthly article or tool, extra discounts from me and our partners, plus access to live Q&A sessions. All of this is delivered to your inbox on Fridays, and at just $10 a month, it really pays for itself because you're getting far more than that $10 cost. As I always say, show yourself that your health is a priority with this membership. Plus, your membership supports this podcast and this community so we can continue to do this for you every week. One more time, here's what you do. Go to glow.fm slash salad with a side of fries, or just click the link in the show notes. That's even easier. Once you're there, you click support now, enter your email and payment method, click subscribe, and you're all set. You'll get this week's recipe for the lemon garlic kale salad. All right, so Brandy, today we're covering grains, specifically wheat, and understanding celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, and the role of glyphosate. So (laughs) this is a loaded topic, I know. (laughs) 
Definitely. A lot to cover in one episode or one conversation even. I know. We're going to do it. And we've talked about this before as far as, you know, understanding gluten, celiac, and gluten sensitivity. You know, we've covered it, nutrition nuggets. I always say, you know, gluten fundamental is the protein found in some grains. And it's like when we think about it, I feel like it's like what gives bread sort of like that texture that we like. It's derived from the Latin word for glue. Not all grains contain gluten, but most do, right? Like unfolded dough or sort of like rice. We'll get more into that in a second. I think the big piece with gluten, I talk about it like it's on a spectrum, right? So on the one side, you may have no issues <laughs> at all. You don't notice any difference when you eat it. In the middle somewhere is sort of like gluten sensitivity, where you might experience, you know, some indigestion or bloating or crankiness. And then on the sort of the other extreme, you have celiac, which is actually an autoimmune condition that really, like all autoimmune conditions, is a function of, you know, permeated gut. You're nodding along. Tell me what I'm missing. Fill in the gaps. <laughs> that was very quick. <laughs> And it's a very good overview of, of what gluten is. Just to expand on gluten, it's not one individual protein. It's an entire class of proteins. And these are common, as you mentioned, in wheat, barley, and rye. However, other grains like oats are often cross-contaminated with gluten because wheat and oats are processed on the same equipment. So that's why if you are gluten sensitive or if you're celiac and trying to avoid gluten then you would look for gluten-free label. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing, too, is, you know, I feel like when we were kids, this wasn't part of the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, <laughs> now it's like between nut allergies, gluten sensitivity, all of these kinds of things. It's, you know, kids, first of all, I give you a lot of credit if you have to bring a snack to a child's classroom. You know, <laughs> you know, like it's really crazy sort of how it's grown, I think, in prevalence, but also in awareness. Right. I think you could say that really this and this goes back to all autoimmune conditions being linked to a leaky gut. I think you could say that celiac disease is just one case or one disease associated with gluten intolerance. And yes. essentially all autoimmune conditions are associated with gluten intolerance to some extent in the in the fact that it makes or creates a leaky gut. Um, so even things like myself, I have an autoimmune thyroid condition and I know that wheat or gluten in general greatly exacerbates the symptoms. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because we so often want to put everything into silos and categories. And I think it's a really good point to say, look, if, you know, all autoimmune is connected to leaky gut, then anything that contributes to leaky gut contributes to the autoimmune. And maybe that's not so scientific, right? Maybe we're sort of saying, okay, if A plus B equals C, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, maybe there's a bit of inference in it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I think it makes a lot of sense just using myself as an experimental model. Um, 
I know it plays a huge role in my own diet and other things like stress are also a huge trigger for symptoms for me. We'll talk about later how stress, of course, impact digestion. Yeah, for sure. We'll come back to that. So I pulled some stats because I was like, is it only in my head that, you know, (laughs) this is so prevalent? So I'm looking at some data. So it's estimated that one in 133 Americans has celiac disease. I had no idea it was that high. I mean, that's almost 1%. Yeah, it's 1%. And then there were other studies that were maybe more recent showing it's potentially higher than 1%. There was a mass screening. And then here's what's also crazy is that this used to also be much higher percentages in the U.S., And now, over time, we're also seeing it grow across the world. So they're seeing higher rates in kids in Italy. In Finland, it's almost at 2% of the population. I'm like skimming these bullet points. These also, by the way, came from celiac org or whatever, you know, one of those. So it says, a meta-analysis found that the global incidence of celiac disease significantly increasing. Increase in celiac disease incidence is occurring beyond diagnostic improvements, most likely due to environmental factors. It's also found the pooled global prevalence of celiac was about 1.4%. And it talked about, too, like misdiagnosis because... It's not the easiest thing to diagnose, especially if it's a sensitivity versus, you know, full-blown celiac. Right. You know, a lot of times to, in air quotes, diagnose it, it really just requires an elimination diet and anecdotal evidence to say, hey, I felt better without it. Yeah, And that requires a lot of (laughs) self-awareness. Right. And not only a lot of self-awareness, but also awareness of where it's hiding in foods. Right. For instance, soy. And um, the big one is microbrews. There's yes. tons of gluten in microbrews. I mean, it's true even of light beers, but to a lesser extent. So this says it's estimated that up to 83% of Americans who have celiac disease are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed with other conditions. Six to 10 years is the average time a person waits to be correctly diagnosed. Yeah. And I mean, diagnosis involves going in and doing a biopsy. I mean, it's not just like running over to the lab and having some blood drawn. It's a full surgery. And so, and to say that, right, I mean, it doesn't necessarily take all that to notice a sensitivity. Right. Absolutely. And so it could be, um, you might notice some joint pain. You might notice, like I said before, being cranky when you eat certain foods, bloating, Right? That like, oh my God, I can't breathe. I have to unbutton my pants thing, (laughs) you know? But you're like, I didn't eat that much. This is weird. Or I also remember feeling like I had a food hangover sometimes. Yeah. And well, the other interesting thing is gluten's been studied quite a bit in uh, people with mental health conditions and also mental diseases such as schizophrenia. And I mean, there's a huge correlation between exacerbation of schizophrenia-related symptoms and intake of gluten. And it's, I mean, again, when we think, about, we talk about it all the time, there's such a connection between the gut and the brain. Yeah. That of course these things are connected. 
And part of that, maybe I'm skipping ahead, right? But like, so we have like in the gut, part of what happens with gluten, as we're talking about, is this gut permeability, which is typically, maybe not typically, but I always think of it as an increase in zonulin. And when we have issues in the gut, you have serotonin and melatonin and all these other neurotransmitters and hormones that can be disrupted because of issues in the gut. So like it tracks to me that those are things we see, you know, and there's also issues with like fertility and things like that and, you know, a whole host of other conditions connected to gluten. And we talk about microbiome being so important to your health. And then I'm just wondering with this increase in global incidence, is that due to maybe increased use of antibiotics in the food supply or just increased use of antibiotics in general in the whole of the population? Honestly, I have to think all of the above. I don't know that there's any way to even isolate it. Yeah. Right? Like, how would you isolate that? Because you also then have the average person, you know, you have more antibiotics, more gluten, which we'll talk about more in a minute, less fiber in people's nutrition, right? A lot of foods that we think are fermented are actually pickled, right? We have more sugar, more processed foods, like all of these pieces come together to create sort of like the perfect storm, I think. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about herbicides and pesticides yet. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But that brings up, right? All of those things that we just brought up are pieces to think about of saying, okay, if I'm noticing some of these things, then I want to focus on eating those prebiotics, right? The fiber-rich fruits and vegetables, maybe some fermented foods, like focusing on the health of the microbiome. By the way, also, we've talked about aloe before as really helpful in repairing the lining of the gut. It deserves some conversation. When we say sort of gut permeability or, um, you know, leaky gut, essentially what happens, here's a biology lesson audibly. Let's see if we can do this. So if you put your fingers like in front of your face, with like the fingertips sort of facing each other and your palms facing your face and like wiggle your fingers around, right? Those are what we call like villi. And so the villi that line your intestines is like how we absorb nutrients. In between those villi, like almost where the palm of your hand is, where all the fingers meet, is like the gut barrier, like the lining of the gut and the end of your gut. And what can happen over time is that that becomes permeable. It becomes, you know, more of like a sieve than a wall. (laughs) And then toxins are getting into our bloodstream directly from the intestines rather than going through the proper process and the proper function. The other thing that can happen with autoimmune and celiac and villi can get sort of blunted and it's almost like bending your fingers in half, right? And then you have less surface area to be absorbing nutrients, and it's a whole snowball. But again, that's my like very rudimentary (laughs) biology lesson. Yeah, explanation of what goes on. So I think, right, so if we want to repair that, right, aloe can help repair that. Having the fiber from vegetables and fruit that acts as a prebiotic and, you know, potentially a high-quality probiotic. Right? Like there are tools that we have in our arsenal, you know, to help with that. And certainly avoiding those grains that have gluten 
the main ones being, like we said before, wheat, rye, barley, and then oats because of cross-contamination. Maybe another note on this gluten, and this is going to take us into the world of uh, wheat hybridization. So being that entire class of gluten proteins, there are certain ones that are more inflammatory or more that the body perceives as more toxic and so elicits higher inflammatory response than others. And the thing with proteins, because you may be like me and think, doesn't, with the acidity that's in my stomach, shouldn't those proteins be broken down like during your digestion? Well, what happens is when you have a certain sequence of amino acids in those proteins, it's hard for the body to chop it down. Like it just doesn't make the correct enzymes intact, actually, even despite the low pH inside your stomach. And so it will make it into your intestines intact. And then when you have leaky gut, so again, that's where those villi are kind of spread apart and that membrane, that gut membrane becomes more permeable. These short sequences of amino acids make their way through and into your bloodstream. And then that's where they start causing all of this havoc. Well, as it turns out, wheat has been hybridized uh, naturally and also man has hybridized it. And here I'm not talking about GMO. I'm talking natural hybridization the way that Explain that for a second because I think we want to differentiate between like GMO and natural hybridization. So like go for it. With natural hybridization, the way that, and this can happen either in nature or man can help it along. So let's say you have two daylilies. You have a red one and you have a yellow one and you would like to cross those. So you would just pluck the pollen from one and drop it into, onto the stamen or the pistil of the other one and then cross your fingers and hope for the best that you've created a seed that will come out probably orange. Um, it's like a seventh will, grade science project. Yeah, exactly. Because it'll take on properties of both of its parents, the red daylily and the yellow daylily. So bees could pollinate, man could pollinate, however, however you want to. Other wind can pollinate. When we're talking about GMO, we're talking about taking the DNA and splicing it uh, from one organism into another one. And this is to make one of Jen's favorite fruits, the grapple. <laughs> <laughs> I actually dislike the grapple because I don't like things that taste like grape, but that's beside the point. So basically, so just backing up a hot second. So when we say GMO, right, it's genetically modified organisms. And there's almost like two categories of GMO. Like sometimes they're modified to create something new, like the orange daylily or the grapple, right? You take grape and apple and make a grapple. Or there's GMO to create produce or I suppose food products that are that don't need pesticides or herbicides because you know they're designed to you know not be eaten or to grow in you know less favorable conditions or different kinds of reasons so there's sort of two different categories of GMO at least the way I think about it I'm sure there's more than that but yeah yeah you're right so to splice things together to make something because an apple and a grape wouldn't that's not natural for an apple and a grape to mate. And then, yes, back to your point. So also, I think one of the most common ones for talking about pesticide, fungicide is 
there's a particular kind of um, bacteria that's spliced into the plant DNA, and then it produces a fungicide in the plant itself. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I mean, all of this working is kind of similar to how Roundup Ready crops are made is because they're splicing in. It's not necessarily certain genes to make their own fungicide, but it's certain genes to allow the plant to thrive despite being sprayed with a heavy dose of herbicide. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. So, well, this <laughs> brings us to a perfect transition into sort of understanding ancient wheat versus modern wheat and taking it back into some of this celiac gluten wheat thing. So let's talk about that after a quick message from our partner for this episode, Layered Jewelry. So the modern woman is multifaceted, taking on many important roles in the various aspects of her life. Inspired by her own multi-layered life as a busy mom, trendsetter, entrepreneur, and influencer, Amber Ridinger McLaughlin set out to create a line of jewelry that lets women create their unique style and celebrate their own beautiful layers. Layered is luxurious and affordable, the perfect combination for the modern woman. Layered allows you to mix, match, stack, and layer pieces that make you feel empowered and beautiful. Each piece is handcrafted to be unique and exquisite just for you. So maybe this is like your own hybridization (laughs) by layering your jewelry. Hardly, but whatever. I tried real hard to tie it in. All right. I will tell you guys, I love layered. I mix it with, you know, my good jewelry and people, you know, think it's way more expensive than it actually is. Their spring collection from this year was called the Custom Capsule Collection. My new staple is the Cora Oval Cut Solitaire Pendant. So it's on like a micro cable chain, so super tiny chain. Then it's sort of this like oval By itself, it's like simple and elegant, or you can layer it with things. P.S., it is a whopping $89.95. And that is before your 10% off and free shipping for being a salad with a side of rice listener. So simply text the word LAYERED to 844-947-4846. You'll receive the link and coupon code right to your phone. Again, simply text the word LAYERED to 844-947-4846. Four, six, to get this handcrafted, luxurious, yet affordable jewelry at 10% off with free shipping. This is a toll-free number. Standard text and data rates may apply. All right, Brandy. Ancient wheat versus modern wheat. I'm going to let you start with this. Okay. No pressure. <laughs> so back when I first became gluten sensitive or realized in 2012, and I was having problems with severe problems with anxiety that I'd never had before. I started asking myself, why is it that so many of us really struggle with today's wheat when humans have been eating wheat for thousands of years? What's so different about modern day wheat than ancient wheat? So I started digging into it and realized that modern day wheat has been hybridized. It's a hexaploid wheat species which means that essentially it codes for three different classes of gluten proteins. So it codes for AA, BB, and DD. This is compared to ancient wheat. The very first wheat on the planet was einkorn wheat. And this was, there was a wild species of einkorn, became rapidly domesticated. And regardless of which one you're talking about, those are 
a diploid wheat species, which means they only code for the AA set of gluten proteins. So, and we happen to be lucky, there is a company that has made it their mission to bring einkorn wheat back to the world because it was nearly extinct. And I believe one of the people um, at this company, the company's name is Jovial, also had celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, one or the other, and you know, set out to figure out whether they could find einkorn and they were successful and, and brought it back to the market. Then when we're talking about other wheat species, because the question may come up, what about durum wheat? Durum wheat is actually tetraploid, whereas einkorn has like two sets of chromosomes. Modern day wheat has six sets of chromosomes. Durum wheat is in the middle with four sets of chromosomes, and it codes for the AABB set of gluten proteins. So essentially, right, we'll come back to like why sort of the wheat hybridization and sort of modern wheat came to be. But essentially what we're seeing is that with modern wheat, there are a lot more gluten proteins. So there's essentially more opportunities for reactive nature. Like there's more reactive compounds, I suppose, is like the easiest way to put it. Well, this goes back to whether or not they're broken down in your body, in yeah. the digest, specifically in the digestive tract. And einkorn wheat, those gluten proteins are broken down more because the gluten proteins, then we're starting to look at glutenin versus gliadin proteins within underneath the gluten protein umbrella. And it gets kind of confusing because if you just look at those ratios, you can think there's no way einkorn's better than modern day wheat because it's got more of the ones that should cause autoimmune concerns. However, it's the specific sequence of those appears to be able to be broken down within the body because it actually codes for different gluten proteins, the ancient wheat versus modern day wheat. That's where it really lies. Yeah. And so let's talk about for a second, like, why did this happen, right? Why did this man-made hybridization create modern wheat, right? Like, what was the purpose? And I don't know. I find this super fascinating. So I don't remember the guy's name who created it. What Didn't he win, like, the Presidential Medal of Honor, right? For ending world hunger. Right. Okay. So this <laughs> is the whole thing. So the idea was if we can make the wheat grow in less than ideal conditions and withstand, you know, all these other forces, then we'll have more wheat and we can end world hunger because wheat is the solution to hunger. You know, it helps it make it easier to harvest. And in that process, this modern wheat was created, which now we're seeing has potentially a whole lot of other implications. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, so it was hybridized initially to give better properties to bread. And then kind of back during the 70s, just as you said, this guy was like, okay, let's end world hunger. And so they crossbred it with um, some grasses to create shorter wheat stalks. And then so it doesn't put so much energy towards growing really tall stalks. And then also it increased the size of the kernel. So yeah, it just made it a lot easier for a thresher to come through and chop down the whole field. And um, then you had these nice big kernels compared to einkorn, which is smaller kernels. 
And I believe there's something with whether or not it's a free kernel or kind of enclosed in the husk um, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, in that husk. Yeah. And I mean, essentially, right? We have with this hybridization, this idea of, oh, we can mutate, <laughs> right? We can genetically modify this food for these circumstances, right? We have a growing population we need to feed. We can do that here in this way. And then we sort of fast forward. Now we have all this increase in gluten sensitivity and gluten intolerance and celiac. And so I think, I think it's hard to ignore that connection. Yeah. Which makes us say, okay, perhaps if you are gluten sensitive, you might want to look for some of these ancient grains. You might want to make the special effort to see where you could find the einkorn or to see where you could look at, you know, Durham or semolina or some of these other choices that are sort of pre- hybridized, <laughs> you know, like that are non-bastardized by our food industry. Yet. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> right? I mean. Love it. Yes. That's, yeah. that's perfect. <laughs> so here's the other side of that, right? So when you and I were having this conversation, I had a moment in my head of like, I sort of feel like wheat was the first GMO product we ever had. Well. Potentially. I don't know for sure. Even wheat, even modern day wheat, it's not GMO. I mean, it was because again, we've been cross pollinating for forever. Um, and even the way the ancient wheats, they mated with the grasses to, you know, form the next, form that kind of intermediate, the Durham wheat. So it's still not GMO. Um, right. But it is a forced hybridization rather than, right. Yeah, natural hybridization. The piece that sort of connected the dots to me, right, is we keep hearing, maybe we don't keep hearing, maybe I just keep hearing it, but like, <laughs> I think that, you know, maybe we don't have enough research or the powers that be continue with the GMO foods with the claim that it's fine. Yeah. In my head, the reason why I really want to talk about this and why this is so important to me is because if we look at this as sort of the beginnings of process and that behavior and that tendency in our food, right, with man's intervention, then, and today, you know, however many years later, we're seeing this issue with autoimmune conditions and gluten and, you know, all these pieces, then like, to me, it stands that maybe this is what we can expect or might expect in the future, given what we're doing with today's GMO foods. And I agree with you 100%. We're not going, it took essentially 50 years, let's say 30 years, to see the effects of modern day wheat. And to your point, yes, with these GMO foods, it's likely going to take 30 years to see the effects of it. I don't know. Can our healthcare system really afford that? Let's hope that we're having this conversation so it doesn't take 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> but that also brings up sort of this whole thing about glyphosate, right? And you brought yeah. up Roundup before. So glyphosate is one of the chemicals in Roundup. Roundup, most of us have heard of, I think, it's the typical sort of weed killer, right, that's used. I mean, these days you could even buy it at your local gardening shop, 
you know, or Home Depot or whatever, one of those. Um, and so, you know, glyphosate is only one of the chemicals in it. And there's also a piece of glyphosate in the gluten conversation too. Okay. So Bayer is planning to no longer sell Roundup with glyphosate in the residential market beginning in 2023. However, it's still all hands on deck and glyphosate planning to be sold for agriculture. So that is one important thing because it's been popping up on my newsfeed all week about Bayer pulling Roundup from the market. And no, they're pulling it from the residential market. So <laughs> there's a few other, I mean, there was also a recent ruling in a circuit court of appeals. I have no, it's not, we'll get to it. We'll come back to those things, but keep going. Okay. Go okay. Yeah. So what you said about uh, glyphosate in Roundup. So essentially it's the active ingredient in Roundup. And then the other things are there. They're known as, uh, some of the other things are there known as adjuvants to help um, empower the glyphosate to kill the weeds more better. More better. Yes, more better. Um, <laughs> so many of these adjuvants are things like surfactants. And so you can think of shampoo, you can think of soap. There are things that are going to help it spread and wet the surface of whatever it's sprayed onto a lot easier. And then the glyphosate itself, not only is it used for kind of treating the land before the seeds are planted, for Roundup Ready crops, it's sprayed on those crops throughout their life. There is some variance by state. Certain states have certain rules for how long you can spray certain crops with Roundup um, into its growing cycle. So that is state to state dependent. And then even if it's not Roundup Ready, so especially if it's not Roundup Ready, and here we're talking things like wheat, sugarcane, oats, and pretty much beans. Essentially, anything you can think of that comes from soy, that comes from a crop, like a crop that's cut down, Roundup is often sprayed on it at the time of harvest, so say within a couple of weeks of harvest, to kill the crop it, because it makes it dry out faster and it's a lot easier to cut down once it's dry. Right? Anything we can do to make things easier, <laughs> right? Again, we sort of get to the snowball, Right. A few pieces on this. When Roundup, or I should say when glyphosate was tested with GMO products, the GMO product was tested with glyphosate only, not with many of the other chemicals that are in Roundup. So even the studies that do exist that are saying this is safe, it's not really an accurate assessment. The other thing is a lot of the studies that have been done up till now, right, the government's go-to studies that say, you know, this is fine, most of those studies are like 8 to 12 weeks in duration, 2 to 3 months. Studies that go longer show the issues arising around the 4-month or 16-week mark. We have an issue here with, you know, timeline. We also have an issue here dosage because there's sort of two sides to the dosage piece. One is that some studies are showing that lower levels are contributing to greater effects than higher levels. And so a lot of these studies have, are using such high amounts 
that we're not necessarily seeing what's accurate and what somebody might be consuming at a time. Another piece, so this was, I think it was, a, it was a 2019 study that I think was like Washington University or something like that, where essentially it's showing a generational impact of the glyphosate. So if we say, you know, grandma is generation A, mom, dad is generation B, and child, right, is generation C, generation A might show nothing, no impact whatsoever of the glyphosate, and then generation B and C are showing tremendous impact. And so I think, you know, as long it took us 30 years to see the impact of the shift in the hybridization of wheat, I mean, we're already to some degree potentially seeing that here with glyphosate. And then you add the glyphosate to the wheat and now you're, it's like, <laughs> you know, all yeah. things coming together. Yeah. Just a l- little bit more about the history of yeah. glyphosate and also wanted to mention um, the way that it works, but sticking yes. with the history piece of it for a minute. So yeah, it's discovered in or developed in 1970 and then its use in crops really took off around the mid 90s. I've come across a couple of like really great graphs showing the exponential growth in glyphosate for a number of different crops starting in 1995 and moving kind of up into the mid-20-teens. Just a little bit more on my backstory here. I used to work at BASF doing pesticide and herbicide formulation development, and I was always thinking, why is everybody concerned about an herbicide? It kills plants. We aren't plants. Why are we so worried about it? Well, it's because one of the ways that glyphosate is able to kill weeds, broadleaf weeds, is impacts the shikimate pathway that's present in plants and many of the bacteria that live in our gut. Exactly. Talk about that a little bit because I think it's so important and is the beginning of like this whole snowball impact of what we see, gut permeability and, you know, the snowball of conditions that we're experiencing. Yeah, because essentially, and this has been studied, I think today we have even more, I feel like there was ample literature on just the health diversity of your gut microbiome, even before they started with fecal transplants. And especially since those have started, there's even more information on and data collected showing that, yeah, so your gut microbiome can impact things like your weight your mental health, essentially every aspect of your health, it all comes back down to the bacteria that are living inside your intestines. And I've heard somebody recently say that our bodies are an ecosystem. And I think that that is- I love that description. It just, it resonated so much with me because this kind of plays into things like Ayurveda and the Ayurvedic principle of, of how the body is viewed, where the body is basically- the entire universe in a microcosm. You are walking around, you are a universe, I'm a universe. You know, we're all universes of just an abundance of uh, diversity. And here we're talking living organisms within our own body. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that we're disrupting all these living organisms, especially in the gut, which is as we've learned over the years, the sort of center of, you know, a lot of our endocrine system, right? Our hormones, 
our obviously digestion, but our mood, our neurotransmitters, like all of these pieces are coming from the gut. So when that sort of when that gets disrupted, we see the impact head to toe. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting what you brought up about the fact that low levels of glyphosate in some cases have been shown to be worse than high levels of glyphosate exposure. And so that kind of goes back to even back to the the gut microbiome again, because what's really happening there is it that the glyphosate is killing off certain bacteria and then they're almost becoming glyphosate resistant? I mean, is that why we're seeing that happening rather than at the high glyphosate levels, it's probably killing off the entire colony. So there aren't any more bacteria left around, at least of that particular strain of bacteria. Like what's going on there? That's really interesting. So I don't know for sure, but I also have a guess that it becomes a function of the snowball effect of, right, the first generation potentially was eating more foods before, yeah, before the, glyphosate, the glyphosate, right? Yeah. So glyphosate messes with the soil, right? So our soil is deficient in nutrients. Glyphosate also inhibits our own detoxification pathways. To me, it's almost like maybe generation A, right, the grandparent who had far less of this has more potentially like resistance to it than the younger generations who, you know what I mean, like don't necessarily have the microbiome built, right, or the detoxification pathways ready for this. That maybe it ultimately is a function of toxicity levels and the amount, but that the first generation, you know, has a better ability to fight it than the subsequent generations. I can definitely see that. And just because they've lived before glyphosate was was right. out there. And so it's almost like they have a savings account of... Exactly. Yeah. And then also kind of to your point of children born in the past, what are we talking now, 30 years, haven't lived in a glyphosate-free world. And so right. the entire from basically the time of conception and through their entire lives, they've been exposed to it. Exactly. Might glyphosate be doing during those developmental stages of life as well? Yeah, who knows? I mean, potentially, right? Like if all these things are having that, like maybe kids' detoxification pathways, kids' microbiome is disrupted from the jump. Like I think there was something I read where it was even starting as young as like, you know, six years old. You know, once they eat, or I guess it was like age two to six, like once they start solid foods and on up, yeah, it's just sort of that snowball. So interesting, the United States is like 4% of the world's population. The U.S. consumes 20% of the world's glyphosate. And by the way, there are tons of countries who have already banned the use of glyphosate. I mentioned this before. There is this recent appellate court decision that basically is requiring the EPA to reassess whether or not glyphosate poses an unreasonable risk to humans and the environment. What's ultimately going to happen with that? Who knows? But I think this brings up the point of like, okay, what do we all do, right? I think a lot of times the issue with gluten and celiac is exacerbated by the glyphosate. I think a lot of our health conditions all over the place are exacerbated by glyphosate. Like 
maybe this is a conversation for another day, but there's also connections between, you know, glyphosate and the conversion of testosterone into estrogen. And so for a lot of younger people, that plays into maybe a diagnosis of like PCOS. I think for a lot of older generations, they're experiencing these hormone imbalances now that maybe they didn't experience before, so they don't have this diagnosis from before, but now we're sort of, you know, potentially later in life going, what is happening to my body, (laughs) you know? And so to wrap this up, right, like what do we do? Where do we go from here understanding that? And I think the first piece is, like we said before, going back to those ancient grains and making the extra effort to look for amaranth and millet and teff and some of these, you know, like the einkorn wheat and, right? Yeah, definitely taking a look at the wheat gluten component of the diet and then choosing certified or organic. And here, yes. you know, I, I know you're a huge advocate of organic. Here, it's thinking it's just like the oats. So I will opt for certified organic oats over gluten-free oats any day of the week, despite being gluten sensitive. Organic sugar, because sugar and oats are both two big crops that are contaminated with glyphosate and that they spray with glyphosate prior to harvest. Wheat is another one. So again, organic Mm -hmm. wheat and beans are kind of... Beans and legumes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And nuts, right? Aren't almonds one of the top? So almonds supposedly... I've heard this and I've seen this all over the internet that almonds are one of the top contaminated crops with glyphosate. Everything I've pulled up I cannot find solid evidence on almonds aren't even listed in the top like dozen crops treated with glyphosate. And I mean, almonds come from trees as most nuts. I mean, aside from peanuts, most nuts are coming from trees. And so they're not going to go through and just spray the entire crop with Roundup because they're going to kill the trees. So this is something, if anybody listening knows why Roundup or why almonds have gotten such a bad rap as being contaminated with glyphosate, if you could let Jen know. Right. (laughs) Let all of us know. You know, and I don't know if that's also just sort of one of those of trying to draw connections to say, okay, the gluten allergy sensitivity has dramatically increased over the years, so has a nut allergy. And so maybe we're just, you know, throwing all these things into the same category. I don't know. On the layman Google... It's all over about almonds being contaminated with glyphosate. When I go to Google Scholar and I search it, I can't find it. Like, I'm missing something All right, so jury's still out. And if (laughs) you are involved in this, let us know. Please. So you brought – so going back, I mean, you brought up, you know, buying organic. And I also generally recommend buying local because you can talk to the farmer. Yeah. But I also think maybe it's worth looking at a lot of these countries that don't allow glyphosate – Again, it's a balancing act, and we have to pick our battles between, you know, eating an entirely organic, you know, nutrition plan and, you know, eating local for the most nutrients, but potentially something that's coming from Mexico, where Mexico and Canada have outlawed, you know, glyphosate, that maybe there is some benefit to some of these imported foods. So I think there's pros and cons, right? And all of us fundamentally, have to just pick our battles and decide where the priorities are for ourselves. The priorities and what's reasonable, right? Right. What can we reasonably expect of ourselves to do? Like, 
I don't think it's reasonable to expect that everyone's going to do the research that you and I started digging into <laughs> to have this conversation. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think one more thing, and this just has been on my mind since the whole BPA thing. So we outlawed BPA and then we brought in BPS. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. BPA free, but even if it's outlawed, then what are they using next? And right now, Roundup just far surpasses the next two herbicides that are most commonly used in America. Yeah, I think it's an individual talk over looking at, okay, how is this herbicide killing the plant and what's it doing to my body? Right now, with the prevalence of Roundup, I think it's definitely the biggest fish to fry. Yeah, I agree with you. By that token, too, like I always say to everybody, we want grains to be more of a condiment than a food group. Yeah. <laughs> right? So even just limiting how much we're having, <laughs> right, when we have it and thinking about it in that way. And then the last thing I want to mention, because we talked about a couple weeks ago, the 2022 Dirty Dozen and Clean 15. So please note, when they do those tests, they do not look at glyphosate in those. They do not look at GMO in those because it is specifically looking at like insecticides. You know, like corn is on the clean 15. Please don't. Like even with the clean 15, like I think I even mentioned this when we went through the list. I was like, I don't agree with that. But so <laughs> even, <laughs> even with that, right, like GMO and some of these other toxins that are used are not measured when they give us that list of the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. Okay, I have not listened to that episode yet, Jen. I'm I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to hit that up. Yeah. So I think right, so long story short, right? If somebody wants to learn more about this sort of glyphosate conversation, Stephanie Seneff has some great work I have a bone yes, to pick with Stephanie Seneff's work. Yes, I know Sinef's. you do. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I definitely have a bone to pick with Stephanie Seneff's work. Specifically, her proposals or hypothesis is that glyphosate is integrated into the proteins in your body in place of glycine. If that were true, then there's a molecule called sarcosine that is much closer in structure to glycine than even glyphosate. And so it would be integrated into your proteins in your body, and it is not. So I think her hypothesis on that is like so far out in left field. I mean, with everybody, right, on all of this stuff, like I think take some of it, you know, with a grain of salt and look at all the other pieces too. And also Zach Bush does a lot on this, you know, but listen to a few different opinions on this. Like you don't have to just take this conversation as the only conversation on it. But I think learning to pick our battles, put grains in proper proportion to the rest of our nutrition, and understand that there is so much more to this than, you know, food labels or, you know, even saying, oh, well, it's gluten and celiac and all the things. Like, we can dig deeper and we can make better choices. And there are grains out there for somebody who even is gluten intolerant or has celiac. Yeah, I would agree. Awesome. All right, I think that means it's time for our nutrition nugget. You ready? I'm ready. All right, so this week we're talking about I am versus I have. And you're looking at me like, what? I got it. Okay, so you guys might recall I did an episode called Going Against the Textbook because I am a stickler for the words that we use. And this connects to our subconscious mind, our conscious mind, what people call neurolinguistic programming. So the I am versus I have phrasing, 
I think is often overlooked, and I'm talking about it because I believe it deserves our attention, especially when it comes to our health. When someone is overweight, what's the phrase that's most often used? I'm overweight. Or I'm fat. Yeah. Right? Sometimes people call me and they say, my doctor told me I am diabetic or I am pre-diabetic. Any other disease state, what do we say? I have. Mm-hmm. Someone has cancer. I have lupus. We don't say I am lupus or I am cancer. And so it's subtle but incredibly powerful. So in the world of affirmations, right, like yeah. outside of health stuff, in the world of affirmations, it's said that I am is the most powerful command statement there is. And when repeated, I am statements take charge of our thoughts and take charge of our patterns of thinking, which changes outcomes and actions and outcomes in our lives. So when we think of the implications of these phrases, I think we need to remember, right, the conscious and the subconscious mind. I love the way Brian Tracy explains it. So he says, your subconscious mind is subjective. It doesn't think or reason independently. It just obeys commands that it receives from the conscious mind. So think of your conscious mind as the gardener planting seeds and your subconscious mind as the garden or fertile soil in which the seeds sort of germinate and grow. So the seed planted with I am, those are definitive statements that become part of our identity. Seeds planted with I have are indications of a temporary state, something that's potentially changeable. Again, outside of the health context, what follows I am, right? I even said the other day to someone, I'm a jerk, right? I was like, I'm not a jerk. I did something that was maybe not my best, but it's something I did or said, not who I truly am. We discuss this with practitioners that we work with, you know, and we talk about it in life coaching and in the mental health space. We might feel anxious or lonely or stressed. And we might say, oh, I am anxious or I am stressed. And we'll teach people to rephrase that to say, I have stress or I have anxious feelings at the moment. And that allows for a little bit of separation. It creates a bit of space and perspective and distance to observe, which actually allows a shift in the feeling. So going back to when a doctor says to us, you know, you're diabetic, or we say to ourselves, I'm fat. I just want to tell you, like, you are not fat. Fat is this like gelatinous substance found in animals, and you are not a gelatinous substance, right? Like You are vibrant and intelligent and giving and caring and important to people in your life. You are so much more than fat. You might have some fat, right? You might even have more fat than one would like or than your doctor might recommend, but you are not fat. So I challenge you. Practice saying I have when it comes to things we don't necessarily want to be permanent. So like a, de like a disease or an emotional state. And by the way, obesity, diabetes are diseases, right? Yeah. And I think we'd be served by giving them the same language as other diseases. You know, and moods and emotions don't need to be permanent either. You know, they might be feelings that we have or experience versus who we are. So... 
end of soapbox, <laughs> right? But I just, I want everyone to notice, you know, I suppose I challenge you, right? Notice when you say I am and what happens if you change it to I have. This was your best nutritional nugget ever. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and I mean, you've got some really great nutrition nuggets. Well, thank you. And thank you again for being here and joining us for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Jen. This is great. Awesome. Well, as always, everybody, I'm your host, Jen Trepic. Connect with me on Instagram or all social media. I'm at Jen Trepic, J-E-N-N-T-R-E-P-E-C-K. Website is asaladwithasideoffries.com. So social media or the website, please send me a message. I want to hear your key takeaways, your ideas, any questions you have. This is also the easiest way to learn more about working with me as your health coach. If you're not already a member, become a member by joining us at glow.fm slash salad with a side of fries. Becoming a member supports this podcast and this community, but most of all supports your health. The member's recipe this week is for lemon garlic kale salad. So until next week, remember, we want to pick our battles, right? We make choices based on what works for us, the knowledge that we have, and the tools that are available. And maybe you want to take some special effort to find those ancient brains. Well, friends, that's it for today's episode of Salad with a Side of Fries. Congratulations for making yourself and your health a priority. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to click subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform. Share us with a friend and we'll be back next week. Always remember, you deserve it and you are worth it. Happy healthy.